This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. I don't know that I've ever preached from 2 Peter before, but that's where we're going today. So would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3? And we're going to start with the very last verse, verse 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And Peter's closing out this book and he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. And these are the last words we have written by Peter. This guy is such a changed man from what we see in the Gospels. <laughs> you ever read the Gospels and see Peter blurt out something and you're like, oh, well, glad I wasn't the one that said that, you know? Or you're like, yeah, I would have totally said that if I was there. <laughs> and you look at Peter and his impetuousness and his personality, and you see it just very vivid through each of the Gospels. And you see this rough and tumble sailor transformed by Jesus and hanging around Jesus and then being filled by the Spirit in Acts. And when you read First and Second Peter, you, can, you, see, you see something much more pastoral. You see, a different, you see a much different person than the guy you saw in the Gospels. And several decades have passed and his leadership ability has increased and he's been filled with the Holy Spirit for a long time and he's speaking to the church at large. Some scholars actually say that the way that 2 Peter is written, it's almost like he knows he's writing his last, like, not will and testament, because he's not talking about what to do with his money or something, but it's like his last, like, I know this is the last thing that's going to go out for me. And so the ways that he's writing and the things that he's addressing, the, the, the reminders that he's giving come from that kind of perspective. And tradition has it that Peter was actually crucified on a cross, martyred for his faith. But he refused to die similar to how, Je like he, he, he knew he was going to be crucified, but he made a special request because he didn't want to die the exact same way that his Savior had died. So he actually, uh, tradition has it that he died, they staked him upside down on the cross. And the wisdom that's coming from him and that we're going to read through today covers quite a bit of ground. But he's ending his book. He's ending this little letter and he's saying, but grow. And I think if I was Peter, I'm writing to this kind of like fledgling church that's just getting started and, and there's so much persecution, there's so much danger, there's so many ways that it could get shut off or shut down. And the last words he says, you need to grow. But he doesn't say, go grow in numbers. Go, go figure out how to get more butts in the seats. He doesn't say things like that. He says, but grow what? In grace. Grow in grace. Now, if you have kind of a classic understanding of what grace is, you're like, well, how do I grow in that? Because I was taught as a kid even, that grace is just unmerited favor. Like it's something God just gives you. Grace is unmerited favor for people who don't deserve it. And that's a true definition. But we don't understand the biblical sense of what that favor was and what it looked like. And so if you just kind of take it as this like, I get something I don't deserve, then you think of just salvation. Well, how do you grow in grace or unmerited favor if it's something that God does? Peter's talking about it in a different sense then, right? Like, if it's just unmerited favor, then it's not, I can't grow that, God has to grow that. Because God gave me his grace. But what grace is, is not just unmerited favor. And it's not this, like, classic Sunday school answer. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is empowerment to do something you don't deserve to do. That's what grace is. Grace is an empowerment to do something that an undeserving person shouldn't get to do. They shouldn't even get the opportunity. I'm undeserving. You're undeserving. 
That's how you grow in the grace then, is by that power. You grow in the power. You grow in the ability to do things you don't deserve to do. And I've told this, this kind of uh, story, I guess, in, in a sermon before, but I think it really helps get a picture of what grace is. Okay, so you need to imagine maybe in biblical, biblical times, in Roman times, where there's kind of, there's this Roman patriarch who's very wealthy and very famous. He's got a lot of influence on society. And he owns several marketplace little shops that are selling apples and fruits and vegetables and whatever else. And he's got several other businesses that he runs and a few orchards and all this stuff. And he's got two, three sons a couple daughters, and he's walking down the road one day to kind of inspect one of his little marketplace shops, and he sees a boy, 10, 11 years old, stealing a loaf of bread and an apple. What do you do? In Roman times, if you got caught stealing, you could lose a hand. You'd go to prison. Even if you were a kid, it didn't matter. You didn't have much say, and there wasn't like quite the court system that we have today. But instead, this particular influential Roman looks at this kid and realizes the dire situation that he's in and decides instead of taking the apple and the bread back, instead of punishing him, instead of sentencing him to a life in prison, he takes the kid into his house, he lets him keep the food, and he takes the kid into his house, hires the same tutor that's tutoring his sons, and gives him the same training and teaching. And raises him up and teaches him how to run a business. And teaches him how to live life, and teaches him language and the arts, and how to read and to write. What's this kid going to do? Like, he's being treated as a son by this guy. And he absolutely did not deserve it. He did nothing to deserve it. He was just this orphan on the street looking for food, trying to get by. And he got pulled out of the gutter, got his life completely transformed and empowered. And now he's running a huge orchard. And he's 25 years old and the the wealthy Roman guy passed away. And he's living life and running the family business along with two of his brothers, but he was just adopted in, running it like he was part of the family. This actually happened sometimes. And this is because grace wasn't just like a Christian term. Grace was a Roman term. Grace was in the Greek. It was used in Greek and Latin all the time. And it was, the idea was unmerited favor. This kid, this 10, 11 year old kid did not deserve any of that. And he was given access. And his life was completely transformed. And that's what God, effectively, that's what grace does for us. Is it, is that, is what I just described, unmerited favor? Yeah, but it's like so much more than that. It's adoption, it's empowerment, it's the ability, like, I'm not going to just give you an apple and a loaf of bread. I'm going to give you every, I'm going to give you a chance at life. I'm going to train you how to do this. I'm going to empower you to work on my behalf. And so when this young man became 18, 19, 20 years old, he's walking down the streets and he's commanding authority. Is it his own authority? Mm -mm. It was completely given to him. Same with us. We were, what does scripture describe us? As dead in our sin. We had nothing. We had no opportunity. Folks, you got caught stealing. (laughs) Right? And then Jesus came along and said, you know what? Keep the bread. Keep the apple. And in fact, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to make you a son and a daughter. I'm going to show you how to live life. That's how you grow in grace. And you don't have a full understanding of what's happened. When when you were 10, 11 years old, so to speak, this kid did not know what was happening to him. He was just happy to have some food. Right? Like the grace started out as like this small thing, but as he grew a little older and gained some understanding and, and grew in his capabilities and started to learn the language and math and all, like, Can you imagine the capacity of grace that he was able to walk in? And how much further he extended beyond his own abilities? It's 
impossible. And on a greater scale, that's what Christ has done for us. He pulled you out of the gutter. He pulled you out of death and destruction and said, here, take this life. Take this wealth. Use it. Walk in authority. Walk in power. Walk in ability. Walk and, what does Peter say? Grow in grace. You can't just stay at that 10-year-old mentality, happy to have an apple and a loaf of bread. You've got to grow in that grace. You've got to grow in your ability because God's calling you to run some stuff, to run the family business. How did you, have you read the Gospels where Jesus described himself as being about his father's business? That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. That's what it looks like to grow in grace. You don't stay at it with a 10, 11-year-old mentality just begging for food. You grow in your ability. You grow in that empowerment. And you grow, Peter says what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're growing in knowledge of him, not about him. You gotta, you gotta truly know who he is. There's a difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. There's probably a few people in here know a little bit too much about sports, and you can name different quarterbacks and running backs, and you can quote stats, and you know a lot about them, but you don't know them. There's some of you in this room that maybe know a little bit too much about the Kardashians. But you don't know them. You don't actually know them. And sometimes in church, we get this like kind of similar celebrity mindset where we know a lot about our Savior and we watched The Chosen and so we think we know him. Guys, watching a show is not knowing Jesus. It's a great show. I'm not saying don't watch it. But because you watch it doesn't mean you know him. Any more than watching a, a, a football game means you know the players or the coach. And so Peter is saying, grow in, your, in the grace and grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to know him. You've got to get close to him. And you've been invited in. You've been invited into the house. You've been given supernatural ability that you would not otherwise have. Changed mindsets, freedom that you would never have. You were sentenced to death. And he said, nah, I'm going to give you life. How's that for a trade? You ever think about that sometimes? Like in reality, that's what we're doing. Whenever we tell somebody about Jesus, we're like, hey, I'll trade you your path to death and destruction for life forever. And they're like, mm, nah. Like it blows my mind. It's so, so absurd. Jesus traded, because that, that's, what, that's what the gospel is. Jesus traded his life for your life. He said, I'm going to die so you can live. And all through scripture, all the scriptures in the Old Testament that pointed to him said what? Choose life. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose life. I put before you today life and death. Please choose life. And every day people are like, eh. It's crazy. And Peter invites us to grow in it. Don't stay at your starting point. Grow in it. Grow beyond it. And so as we're kind of ending this letter then, I'd like to figure out a little more context, wouldn't you? Like, what's leading up to this? Because this is pretty powerful, like learning about grace and empowerment, learning about the knowledge of our Savior. But like, what's he talking about leading up to this point? And so I want to jump back up to verse 8. And we're going to work our way through the text here. Back to the verse that we started at, okay? So verse 8, Peter says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had that thought sometimes. Like, I want Jesus to return now. It'd be really nice. And I'm sure Christians through the centuries that have been in worse positions than me, Christians who were put in prison, uh, who were persecuted and tortured for their faith, were like, Jesus, can you just come back now? Right? Like, this has been the Christian hope, the return of Jesus. And Peter is telling them all the way back then, almost 2,000 years ago, he's saying, God is not slow as some understand slowness. And we're like, well, it's been 2,000 years. And you haven't returned yet. Where are you? And Peter tells us, well, a day unto the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't know time. God's not constrained by time. Consider this for a moment. Time is a created thing, just like a tree, just like the world. Time is a created thing, which means God is not subject to time and God exists outside of it. I can't comprehend what I'm saying. I cannot imagine, like I, under, like I understand it in theory, but I cannot imagine, I cannot comprehend not time. We're talking about the eternal God and part of that eternal quality means he exists outside of the space-time continuum to get all sciency on some of you folks. Like he exists outside of that. So you, you've got to imagine this. Like the way that you look at a tree and you can imagine its beginning and its end and you can kind of see it. And you can picture in your mind, you can visualize it starting out as a little sapling kind of poking up out of the ground, and then you can visualize it in its full bloom and full power and majesty, right? And this tree just towers. But you can see also when it dies. You can see it get cut down, or you can see it rot. And we can all visualize in our mind this kind of passing of time, well, or the passing of time for the tree, okay? Picture time itself like that for God. God sees the beginning and the ending right now. Your future is not future to him. Your past is not past to him. The past is not past to him. He's looking at it like a giant panorama. And he can enter it and exit it at will. He doesn't have the same time constraints is like, you know, those time traveler movies where they're like jumping back and forth in time. God can just enter into time at will whenever he wants and insert himself into history. God exists outside of it. It's a created thing that he, that he set into motion. So a day unto the Lord being as a thousand years and a thousand, like Peter's telling us something about God's character and nature. And we're caught and constrained by time. And it's hard for us to see outside of it. And you're walking through your day by day and you're struggling because you've been praying for something for years. You've been asking God and waiting like, when are you going to return? Or you've been praying for healing or you've been praying for something to be manifest. And it hasn't quite happened yet. But God sees the end from the beginning. God sees the whole thing and he knows. He exists outside of time. That blows me away. And so Peter is telling us that God is not slow. He's patient. Why is he patient? Because the more time he gives, the more opportunity he's giving people to repent. If God had not waited the 2,000 years so far to return as Christ promised, we wouldn't have come into existence and had the opportunity to even repent. God wanted, God waited till now to give you opportunity to repent and to give others opportunity to repent. What does he say? God does not want anyone to perish. And there's teaching out there that even in Christian, like there's Christian circles that say God actually has chosen some people to perish. 
He already picked them. It's like, they're destined for hell. And he picked us, and we're destined for heaven. There's teaching out there that's like that. But God's heart is that none should perish. Will there be people who perish? Yes. Why? Because they reject him. Not because God predetermined their rejection. There's a big difference. And so Peter is telling us that God is patient in wanting to give everyone the opportunity to repent. But then he goes on and he says, what's going to happen? This is, this is part of our future, guys. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That sounds kind of scary. Like, wow, everything is going to be destroyed by fire. Like I thought, you know, God promised not to flood the whole earth again, but here we are getting the whole earth destroyed by fire. Great. I don't know if I'm looking forward to that. And then Peter asks us, and he says this, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Okay, wait, what? I just, that, read, that sounded terrible. That sounded like a bunch of fire and burning. Like, isn't that how they describe hell? And Peter tells us that we are to not only look forward to that time, but we are to speed it up. That's a different mentality than I think most of us Christians have had. You can hasten the day of his coming. Why? By giving more people an opportunity to repent. As Christians living life, shining a light in the world and telling other people about Jesus, we can haste the day. We can speed his coming. You know why it's been 2,000 plus years? Because the church has been slow. We've been slow in doing what God asks because Peter told us that we can speed the coming of his day. The day of the Lord, the day that sounds terrible, the day that sounds like everything's going to be burning in fire. But remember what Paul talks about in his letter to the church in Corinthians? The church in Corinth? He tells them that when the fire comes, only that which is holy will remain. Only that which is pure will remain. So there's certain things that are going to be burned up in the fire and there's certain things that are not. The fire stands for a purification process. So why is Peter telling us that we ought to live holy lives? He's reminding us the same way that Paul reminded us that, that fire is a purification process to bring out the gold, to bring out the precious jewels, the precious metals, the things that God's working on inside of you. And he says, that which is just wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up and consumed. So there's aspects of your life that are going to be burnt up and consumed. And there's things that are going to make it through that time of, you could say, judgment, that time of fire, that time of purging. That's why he tells us that we ought to live holy and godly lives. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Sometimes I think as Christians, we're like, well, he hasn't come for 2,000 years, so what's another couple hundred? And we just keep living our life. And we live slow, and we don't try to live holy. How would you live different if, he was, if, you, if you found out he gave you a vision and he told you, I'm coming back tomorrow, what would you do different? I'm pretty sure you would try to be as sinless as possible. That's what we would do. We would, try, we would naturally try to be extra holy. Like, hey, he's coming back. I don't want to be caught in the middle of sin. I don't want to be caught doing something, saying something, thinking something that I shouldn't be thinking. And Peter's suggesting that we should live every day with that kind of mentality. Like, he could return at any time 
My, my life and everything that I've stood for could be completely consumed and burned up. Or what I've done, how I've lived, that's been holy and pure will make it through that purification process. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is something we should look forward to. Not a day that we dread, but what have Christians done? We've, we've dreaded this day. We've dragged our feet. We're living life as Christian turtles when we're supposed to be running. Right? Like we're just like living in a shell trying to protect what little we have and moving along really slow. We're supposed to be moving fast. We're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to hasten the day of his coming. Speed the day of his coming. It's something we should be looking forward to, not dreading. And I understand. Like I remember as a kid thinking about Christ's return, and I remember having conversations with my little brother, and he's like, well, I just, I want to live my life. Like, I hope God gives me the chance to live my life, and then right before I'm about to die, then he comes back. Does that sound like a good plan for most of us? Like, that would be nice, but we're so caught up living our lives from our perspective, we think often this life is so good that we're not even looking forward to that day. Wouldn't you say that that's kind of a weird view of heaven? Like if heaven is truly perfect and awesome and glorious and you get to be with your Savior, why are you not looking for, like why isn't that something that you're more consistently thinking about? Like when you get a new job or something big, some new change is happening, you get a, you're getting a new house or you're getting a new car, something exciting that you're looking forward to, what happens to your brain? It's like constant, it's like a, a broken record. You're thinking about it over and over, and you're thinking about it isn't going to change what day it arrives or what day you sign the papers. It's not going to affect any of those things, but you're thinking about it and preparing for it. And you start telling your friends, like, hey, I got this new job. I'm going to start in two weeks. I'm going to do this. And you start to prepare for it. You start to set things in motion for your family and you make sure you've got everything in order. But then as Christians, we're just living our life like everyone else lives and we have no perspective of eternity, no perspective of heaven, no perspective of our future, and we're certainly, for whatever reason, not looking forward to it. In fact, for some reason, we've got such a distorted view of heaven that we're hoping it holds off. Isn't that a weird way of thinking? But that's how we think sometimes. And you know what that leads to? That leads to apathy. When you've got enough, when life is kind of good, it leads to a need of nothing. Oh, I don't need to rush. I don't need to hurry. But when you're hungry, when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when there's constant pain, it changes your perspective of life. As past Christians would tell us, when they were living in times of persecution, they could not wait until Christ's return. But we got life so, so good. We've got life, we've got a cush life here in America right now. And so it leads to kind of this just, ah, que sera, sera, I'll live how I want to live, no rush. And we're certain, like, when was the last time you thought about heaven and how good it will be? When was the last time? When was the last time you considered the closeness and proximity that you will constantly have to our Savior when you're standing before his throne? And we have such a, such a skewed view. I remember, I remember talking, I, was, I think I was still a teenager. I was talking to one of my buddies and he was like, do you think they're going to have, like, do you think there'll be motorcycles in heaven? Because I think I'd really miss that. I'm like, dude, I don't think you're going to miss a Harley. 
when you're in heaven. Like, I think it's going to be so awesome. We can't even comprehend that we like, we're like, in our brain, we're picturing like the, like, oh, I just want to go on a motorcycle ride versus heaven. Like heaven, guys. And it's this, it's a valid comparison in our brain. And maybe there's things in your life that you would compare. You're like, well, is this going to be in heaven or is that going to be, is this thing that brings me joy going to be in heaven? Heaven is so much greater, so much better than we can think. Like we cannot, we cannot even comprehend how awesome it is. But for some reason, we don't look forward to it. And we don't think about it. But this should be on our brain. This should be something we're like, I want to I speed this up. Let's hurry this up, Lord. Like, I want to go. I want to just, I just want to be with you. I want, I want to taste heaven now. And then that empowers your worship because when you worship, you know you're tasting of the goodness that's to, to come. And that can change how you worship. That can change how you experience worship. Because when you sing those songs, you realize like, I can be near him like this, but more. Because Heaven isn't going to just be a choir. That's another thing. You're like, well, I don't know. I can hold off on heaven. I don't really like choirs that much. I don't really care for singing. Or I want singing to be my way, my genre. Worship, worship is like a genre right now. And so there's like pop and rap and country and worship. And it's like a category. And so if worship isn't your category of music, you have a hard time connecting or entering in. Guys, heaven's going to be so much more beyond that. Heaven is not just singing songs. Heaven will blow your mind. And it's something to look forward to. Peter calls it what? The home of righteousness. I can't can't even imagine everything just being right. Like we live in such a struggle right now. We live in constant heartache and heartbreak. We live in an era where justice isn't served and the court system is corrupt and our government is corrupt and nations are rising against nation and people are fighting and killing each other. But we kind of live over in this area where we're unscathed and untouched by it. Like, Well, it's okay for me doesn't affect me, doesn't bother me. But like, imagine guys, everything right, everything just, everything in its place. I don't even know if I can fully imagine that. And then Peter keeps going, verse 14. He says, so then dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless blameless, and at peace with him. And I love this because Peter just assumes that you're all looking forward to this. I feel like I had to do some work to like make sure, like, hey, you're supposed to look forward to this. <laughs> but Peter just assumes, like, we're all looking forward to this. We're all living in constant expectation. And since you're looking forward to this, make every effort And this is, again, kind of the opposite of Christianity. Because we're so afraid of doing, making any effort or doing works because work salvation, like you can't earn it. And this is the difference in mentality. I'm not doing my works to be saved. It's because I'm saved, because I'm looking forward to the day of the Lord, that I do my good works. The reason I put in effort in my relationship with God is not because I'm striving to be pleasing to him. It's not because I need to get, I need his salvation. I've already been blessed with salvation. You've already been blessed with salvation and you work differently from that position. Right? There's a difference between the work you do striving to get a job and the work you do at your job. When you're not employed and you're just putting in applications and doing interviews, that's a very different process than someone who's got the job and now they're doing the work of their job. 
And that's kind of like, picture that as Christianity, so to speak. Like you are now a Christian. You have been saved, not by the works that you did, because Jesus waived the application process. He said, all you got to do is trust me. You don't have to send me hundreds and hundreds of applications and have this perfect resume. Your, your resume was not enough. So I had to, Jesus is like, hey, I submitted my resume on your behalf. Because your resume was crap. <laughs> so I submitted my resume on your behalf and I got you the job. You're saved now. You're rescued. Now live like it. Make every effort to be spotless and blameless. Why? Because you got the job. You got the spot. He rescued you and he put you in a position. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. He's reiterating what he already said. God's patience, God's waiting means salvation for more people. More people to get the job, so to speak, right? Because they didn't realize that they needed to just allow him to submit the application. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. And this line has always made me laugh. When I remember like first reading it as a kid. He writes, Peter writes, he goes about Paul, verse 16. Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand and which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You're like, why do I get confused sometimes reading Paul? Well, apparently Peter did. No, just kidding. It was actually more of like a compliment in their day. Like he wasn't, he wasn't being like, yeah, Paul's like really unnecessarily complex. <laughs> He's actually complimenting Peter on his, or Peter's complimenting Paul on his ability to articulate things. But he says that the way Paul writes, unstable people, ignorant people, distort them to their own destruction. So he's actually complimenting Peter and encouraging people. And notice, notice something about this, guys. This is really early on. Because, like, if you ever wondered about the Bible and how it got brought together? This is off the subject today, but oh well. Have you ever thought about how the Bible came to be and put together? Like, somebody decided, like, oh yeah, Paul? Like, he's on par with Moses. We're going we're gonna to put his writings in the same book. People had to pray and decide through that and be spoken to by the Lord. Well, Peter is putting Paul's writings on the same level as Scripture here, is he not? He says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other Scriptures to their own destruction. Peter is putting Paul's writings on the level of Scripture already. If Peter wrote this, guys, Peter died in like the 60s A.D., he wasn't a hippie. The 60s AD, there's no like 1900 in front of it. So somewhere 30-ish year, 30 years after Jesus, Jesus died, Peter died. And Peter's already referring to Paul's letters as on par with Scripture. That's pretty crazy. Don't let people talk you out of the Bible. Don't let people talk you out of God's Word. It, it, it brings its own validation. And you could say it's like circular reasoning or something like that, but Peter's validating Paul's writings and saying, don't let them be distorted. Don't let people, ignorant people make it say something that it's not saying. Verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know all of this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Be on your guard. What does that mean? What does it mean to be on guard here? Why is Peter telling us that? Because if ignorant and unstable people can distort the scriptures, what are they trying to do? They're trying to talk you out of it. They're trying to distort it to confuse you. To make you live and act lawless like them. To get you to slow down, live the Christianity that feels good, 
You don't have to make any effort. Jesus, they, they say things like this. You don't have to make any effort. Jesus made all the effort for you. How is that distorted? Did Jesus make all the effort for you? Yeah, Jesus made all the effort for you. So it sounds right at first. But we have to make sure salvation is in its proper place. Jesus made every effort for your salvation. Now you're saved to what? Make every effort as Peter told us. But you're not trying to do it to to earn anything. This is where it gets distorted. This is where it gets confusing. You're living a different life. You're You're living and working from a different mentality. When you know you've got the job, you're secure. When you know you're walking in salvation, you're secure in that. And Peter tells us, he says that you can fall from your secure position. And remember, I just got done telling you that there's some people that believe, there's some Christians that teach that you were predestined for heaven or predestined to hell. They teach it, you know what the theological term for it is? Eternal security. What does Peter say? Don't get carried away by error and fall from your secure position. If there's eternal security, why is Peter warning us that we can fall from a secure position? This is a big theological deal. The way that you fall from your secure position is when you're trying to work at it, you're trying to earn it to get that salvation. But Jesus already paid the price for you to be secure. Work from your secure position. Don't fall from it. That's the difference in mentality. I am not up here teaching work salvation. I'm telling you, you're saved by the work he did on the cross. Now live like a saved person. Live like a rescued person. Live like that young boy who got rescued and pulled out of the life in the gutter. And now he's empowered to manage a household, manage wealth, live life that he does not deserve to live. And so now we understand better why Peter says for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. Because we've had a misunderstanding of the future. We thought it's far away, heaven's far away, it's not coming anytime soon, and so we haven't been living like it's coming anytime soon. We even, we haven't even been looking forward to it. That's how how much of a cush life we've had as Christians in in America in the 21st century. We're not even looking forward to heaven because earth's so good. And it's made us lazy. It's made us not put in any effort. It's made us not care about whether or not we live holy. But friends, when you get a perspective of eternity, when you get a perspective of what heaven's really like and how close you can be to Jesus, it's going to change everything. It's going to change how fast you run, how much you want to pursue the kingdom of God. It's going to change the effort that you're putting in because you're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. And you just live different. So church, we need to be careful we don't let Paul's letters get distorted. We want to make sure that we're not living ignorantly of what God has promised us. And we want to make sure we live consistently, holy, looking forward to the day of the Lord. That's a different mindset. Because we don't know when it's going to be. But we should be looking forward to it. We should be praying for it to come. We should ask God, help us speed the day of its coming. What does that look like? What does it look like for, Christian, for a Christian church to have that mentality? Because we're not going to be a doomsday church. We're not going to be out here preaching rapture like, oh, the rapture's coming tomorrow. Get right or get left. We've got to live different. We've got to think different. 
And Peter's urging us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So you got to be careful who you listen to and you got to be on your guard. Don't let just anybody speak. Don't let anyone distort what Paul's actually saying. When you get presented with ideas, come talk to me or come talk to someone that you trust and work through it, wrestle through it. Why, why are these teachings coming out? What's the point? And it's important to discuss it and work through it and understand. Would you stand with me today? Jesus, I pray right now for a shift in perspective for our church. For a shift in perspective of what Christianity really looks like. To realize that we can actually speed the day of your coming. And it's not on us as an individual. It's on us as a group, as a church, as a body to hasten the day. To tell others about you. To make effort. To make actual effort to think through what we're doing and how we're living. And put some work into seeing other people get saved and rescued and healed and delivered. To watch the joy of other people experiencing the grace of God. One of my favorite things is to watch people experience the grace of God for the first time. To experience His love to find out who they are and what their life might be like, to get pulled up out of the gutter and the path that they were on and set on the right course. God, help us to start to see people from that perspective, to want to share that joy that we have of a future, what heaven is like, how wonderful heaven will be to start to look forward to the day. God, I pray that you would plant a seed now that grows and it's like a mind virus, God, where it takes over every person in this room, how they think about their future because they can't wait to see you, to be face to face with you and your glory, to experience the wonders and joy of heaven, to know what it's like, to feel love, perfect love, all the time. To never, ever feel alone again. To be in that home of righteousness where all things have been made new. All things have been set right. And all the selfishness and all the pride of our era gets burned up. All the hate and all the anger and all the prejudice gets burnt up and it's just gone. All the offense. All the killing. All the bloodshed. All the wars. They're just gone. They're burnt up. And everything has been made new. God, give us a picture of what that would be like. Where wars and famines and disease and sickness and cancer and pain, it's all been vanquished. 
It's all been consumed and burnt up in the fire. And all that's left is that which is precious. All that is left is that which is right and good and just and loving. Jesus, we want to see that picture of heaven. We want to see that picture of heaven. Help us to see that picture of heaven today, God. Help us to see. Help us to know. Help us to understand, God, and make it move us faster to speed the day, to hurry up the day. To live eternity focused. Shift our mindset. Take us over. Consume us, God. To live the life that you enabled us to have. To stop settling for a loaf of bread and an apple that we stole. to just say yes to all the blessing and all the goodness and all the knowledge that you have for us. Would you give your life to Jesus once again with me today and say, Jesus, my life is yours. Everything I am, everything I have, it's yours. I give it back to you. Thank you for the life you've given me. Thank you for the grace and the empowerment. Help me to make every effort to pursue your goodness, to guard my heart, and to be forward-focused, to be eternity-focused. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church. 